great to see you. If you're new and visiting, my name's Brendan, um, a pastoral intern here at Sovereign Grace, a church that loves visitors. So if you're coming to visit us on your long weekend, thank you so much for coming. Uh, if you are new and visiting, you might not realise that we're in the middle of a, a series on Acts. Um, so if you can open with me to Acts chapter 16, I'm going to be reading from uh, verse 25. But before we start reading, um, I just wanted to ask us a question this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at the issue of joy. And I wonder if you would describe yourself as a joyful person. If someone was to ask you, how would you describe yourself? Would you say, would your first response be to say that you're a joyful person? Well, again, we're looking at this issue of, in this passage, we're not going to be looking at the whole passage from chapter 16 all the way through to 1715. That's the set reading. You can read all of that in your own time. We're going to be narrowing in on one particular event, one event in the city of Philippi. Uh, But I, I wonder, are you a joyful person? This morning, we're going to be looking at a special kind of joy that is available for Christians. So Acts chapter 16, 25, let me read, and then uh, I'll pray for us before we start. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this morning, as we open your word, Lord, we ask, speak to us. Help us, your people. Help me, someone who is so quick to forget. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see the amazing hope we have in him. Help us to see the joy there is to be found in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin this morning by reading an article that I read this week from the Smithsonian Magazine. It's entitled, Coming Home. And Carolyn Butler, the writer, writes, Sitting in the back seat of a station wagon on the tarmac at Travis Air Force Base in California, clad in her favorite fuchsia miniskirt, 15-year-old Laurie Sturm felt that she was in a dream. It was March 17, 1973, and it had been six long years since she had last seen her father, Lieutenant Colonel Robert L. Sturm, 
an Air Force fighter pilot who was shot down over Hanoi in 1967 and had been missing or imprisoned ever since. She simply could not believe that they were about to be reunited. The teenager waited while her father stood in front of a jubilant crowd and made a brief speech on behalf of himself and other POWs who had arrived from Vietnam as part of Operation Homecoming. The minutes crept by like hours, she recalls. And then, all at once, the car door opened. I just wanted to get to Dad as fast as I could, Laurie says. She tore down the runway toward him with open arms, her spirits and feet flying. Her mother, Loretta, and three younger siblings, Robert Jr., Roger, and Cindy, were only steps behind. We didn't know if he would ever come home, Laurie says. That moment was all our prayers answered, all our wishes come true. Taken by the Associated Press, photographer Zhao Veda and titled Burst of Joy, this picture on the screen was sent over the news service wires, published in newspapers and around the nation and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1974. It remains the quintessential homecoming photograph of that time. Sturm, 39, who had endured gunshot wounds, torture, illness, starvation and despair in North Vietnamese prison camps, including the infamous Hanoi Hilton, is pictured in a crisp new uniform. Because his back is to the camera, as Veda points out, the officer seems anonymous, and every man who represented not only the hundreds of POWs released that spring but all the troops in Vietnam who would return home to the, to the mothers, fathers, wives, daughters, and sons that left behind. You know, I picked this picture, one, because it's a beautiful picture of joy, isn't it? I mean, you can just see it on her face, the joy as she finally sees her long-lost father who she thought was dead. But it's also a beautiful picture because I believe this is a picture of Christian joy. The joy of the Christian which is founded on a hope that one day we will be reunited with our Father. One day we will come face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so like Laurie, 15, running into her Father's arms, so the Christian lives with eyes on that hope and a heart full of joy. Joy that is based on hope. And the reason why I bring this up is because I believe without understanding Christian joy, it will be impossible for us to understand what we see in Acts chapter 16. Without understanding this joy based on hope, this joy, this Christian joy, we won't be able to understand what we see. And that is because we see Paul and Silas respond in a way which seems completely contradictory to their circumstances. We see Paul and Silas respond in a way that is impossible to understand if we don't understand Christian joy. Well, this morning our story narrows in right into the city of Philippi, as I mentioned before, and we see two conversions occur in this city in two very different circumstances. And so this message I've entitled, All Surpassing Joy, and has two points, two conversions. That is the calm and the conversion of Lydia, and the storm and the conversion of the jailer. Two main points, one hope. And that is that whether you are in the calm or the storm, there is an all-surpassing hope to be found in Jesus Christ. An all-surpassing joy to be found in Jesus Christ. Whether you're in the midst of the calm or the storm in your life, there is joy to be found in Christ. Well, the calm, the conversion of Lydia. Just by way of context, we'd been looking uh, previously in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council had met together to discuss the issue of what makes someone a Christian. 
Do we need to follow the Mosaic law and all the rules and rituals, or is it just by faith in Christ and Christ alone? And the council came to a unanimous decision, a clear decision that's faith in Christ and nothing else. But because of Jews living in many different places where Christians are gathered and Christians are meeting, out of consideration for those Jews, we should uh, avoid certain things like food sacrificed to idols, like blood and like uh, uh, meat from animals that have been strangled. And of course, avoid sexual immorality because that's just a general good thing to do. Um, And so they write this letter and they give it back to Paul and Barnabas and send Paul and Barnabas out. And they go on this kind of itinerant uh, ministry where they take this letter and they use this letter to minister to local churches. So they go back to Antioch and start ministering and encouraging and strengthening the church in Antioch. But a dispute occurs when they uh, aim to go out on their next missionary journey over Mark. See, Barnabas wants to take Mark with them, but Paul doesn't want to take Mark along because he believes Mark deserted them when they're in Pamphylia and shouldn't come with them. And so this dispute happens at the end of chapter 15. They part ways. Barnabas takes Mark with him and goes to his hometown, back to Cyprus. Paul takes with him Silas and goes, with, uh, goes on a journey through the southern uh, bit of modern-day Turkey, which is, is uh, Syria and Cilicia, throughout all the churches in the region, in this kind of itinerant ministry with this letter, encouraging the churches, strengthening the churches, that faith is through faith in Christ alone, or salvation is through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. And then in the beginning of our chapter, in chapter 16, we see Paul and Silas uh, come through a town and they meet Timothy. Timothy, who has this amazing reputation in all the different churches, who Paul would then write two letters to. Paul, who considered Timothy as his child in the faith, and they take Timothy on board. So in our letter, as, or in our section of Scripture, as we read, we have Paul and Silas and Timothy, and of course, Luke now with them as well, this band of brothers. Well, let's begin reading uh, our passage from chapter 16, Verse 6. Chapter 16, verse 6. And Luke writes, And they went through the region of Phrygra and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. You know, they have this letter and they're ready to go and they head north because the Holy Spirit stops them from heading south. You know, Paul and Silas in their missionary journey, they're strategic. They want to find the main cities where people are gathering and preach the gospel there. And so they want to head south actually into Asia. In fact, they want to go to Ephesus is their plan. But the Holy Spirit directly speaks to them and says, no, no, no. We forbid, the Holy Spirit forbids them from going to Ephesus and instead directs them north and they head up north instead. And I just think this is an amazing example of the integral work of the Holy Spirit in directing believers, isn't it? The Holy Spirit forbids them in their path and sends them up north. And the truth is for us as Christians, the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives, ministering to us and directing us. I don't know if you've ever had any conversations or things that come to mind where you're just aware that the Holy Spirit has been working in your life, directing you. I mean, I was just uh, reminded of this the other week. We we did walk up down in uh, Hornsby at the uh, Westfield Shopping Centre. And I was with Charlotte and we were trying to share the gospel with people. And um, it it got off to a great start. I mean, the first conversation we had was with an older couple, Charlotte's smiling already. And I talked to him, oh, look, we've got a survey about Jesus. Um, Would you like to do it? And he's like, no, we wouldn't. And if you give it to us, we'll tear it up and put it in the bin. I was like, oh, man, (laughs) great start. And anyway, all the other guys are having these amazing conversations. And we're really struggling. Like, no one seems to want to talk to us. I don't know if it's strategy or just I'm particularly bad looking or I don't know what it was. But we seem to scare people. And anyway, we're like, okay, let's just talk to someone, find someone. And so we found this crazy Pentecostal guy talking about the Illuminati that had a big, you know, display up and thing up and so we're talking to him and and just chatting away and then suddenly my my cousin walks by and she's like Brendan Charlotte what's going on and this is my cousin who who we've been praying for who I've been trying to find an opportunity to to find her at her workplace she works at Audi 
um, trying to meet her there to try and talk to her and see if we could try and miss her because she just moved into Hornsby and hadn't had an opportunity to find her who just walks by. And she's like, oh, what are you guys doing? We're like, oh, well, you know, we're doing this survey with church and talking about Jesus. And she's like, oh, okay. Well, you seem busy talking to this guy. Maybe we could catch you later. And we're like, look, no, no, we'd rather talk to you, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, look, can we grab you a cup of coffee or something like that and uh, maybe have a chat? And she's like, yeah, that'd be great. And so we ended up having this amazing chat, just talking about where, she'd been, where she's at with her faith and, and um, where she's at with anything to do with Jesus. And just this amazing, timely conversation. We agreed that it would be great to hang out again and catch up again and keep talking. Is that a coincidence? Is that a coincidence that we happen to be standing right there in Westfield, Hornsby, uh, talking to people about Jesus just as my cousin walks by? You know, that is the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit that was guiding Paul and Silas 2,000 years ago. A Holy Spirit that continues to guide Christians even to this day. Well, read on with me. Verse 7. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So they head up north instead of south, directed by the Spirit. And they want to keep going further north into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus intercedes. Now, the Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. But in this instance, Luke is wanting to emphasize the active work of Jesus, the risen Savior, through the Spirit. We'll go on to hear about how God, in fact, calls them later on in the passage. And we see, in fact, all three persons directly one after another being of the Trinity being talked about. Um, and that's because Paul, uh, sorry, Luke wants us to see that all persons of the Trinity are involved in, in this work of, of Christ in building his church. Well, they end up in Troas, which is like this bustling port city. It's a big city of about, at its peak, 100,000 people. In fact, Emperor Constantine, a couple of hundred years later, even considered making it the capital of all of Roman Empire. And are they here in this city of Troas by chance? Absolutely not. Again, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, God is at work. Keep reading with me, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit and God all at work. It must have been amazing to hear it this vision of this man just pleading with them, imploring them, the word is, entreating them, begging them, come and help us. And they conclude that God is at work calling them. And so they set sail for Macedonia and they arrive at Philippi. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13 in Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So they come to Philippi, this pagan city, a busy city, an important city in the region. And they come to a place of prayer. They do what their usual practice is, which is to find the God-fearers and Jews of any city to come and try and preach the gospel to them first. A place of prayer, in fact, was for a region that didn't have enough men to form a synagogue. You know, by Jewish law, a city required, or a synagogue required 10 men to be gathered together. And so we're really here talking about frontier missions. We're talking about Philippi as a city that did not even have 10 Jews living in the city. And so they go outside the city gates by a river, it says, and there's this small group of women gathered together. 
a small group of women that are gathered together probably to pray, perform Jewish rituals together. These are Jews and or God-fearers all together. And so let's uh, continue on reading in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul and Silas with Timothy and Luke, the doctor, find this small group of women. They sit down alongside them and they start sharing the gospel with them. And there's this woman named Lydia from Thyatira. Thyatira was a place that was famous for purple dye. Purple dye being an expensive, expensive dye that would be used by wealthy people, would be used by kings and nobles. And she's a seller of purple dyed cloth. And so Lydia, we know, was a wealthy woman, an influential woman. And so they come, they sit, they preach the gospel, and the Lord opens her heart. This God-fearing woman, probably not a Jew by birth, regularly gathering together with a small group of other Jews, the Lord opens her heart. It's the Lord's work all in, all, all the way through, from the beginning. It's the Lord's work speaking to her. The Lord guides Paul and Silas all the way down through and across past Asia to the port of Troas, across to Philippi, and opens the heart of this influential woman. Now read on, verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, she entreated us, she implored us, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The Lord opens her heart. And now, as before, it was the Holy Spirit through this vision, begging them, imploring them, entreating them to come to Macedonia. Now, it's this woman, Lydia, full of the Holy Spirit, begging them, imploring them, entreating them to come into her home. And now they have a meeting place in her home and her and her family are baptized. And you can almost feel the joy they must have been feeling at that time. I mean, Paul hadn't always had it easy. In chapter 12, we learn that he's in Jerusalem and Herod the king is killing Christians, persecuting them. Travel on a bit from there. They go to Antioch. They're sent out on Paul's first missionary journey. They're opposed time and time again by every Jew set of Jews they come upon until eventually in, in Lystra, Paul is stoned seemingly to death, dragged outside the city, a group of disciples gather around him and he, he gets up miraculously off the ground, is raised to life. I mean, Paul has had it rough and directed now by the Holy Spirit to a place of frontier missions where the gospel has not gone before, where there's barely any Jews at all. They come and have a, a, a relatively warm reception. They meet with this small group of people gathered together and immediately the Lord opens the heart of one lady to believe. And that lady happens to be an influential, wealthy lady. And suddenly they have a venue as well. It's like a church planter's dream. Smooth sailing. Tangible success. And you can almost sense their joy at seeing the gospel go forward. I mean, you've, you've tasted, we've tasted that joy before of, of seeing the gospel go forward, haven't we? I mean, I was thinking about just the other week at Ollie's Bucks. Um, there's a guy who we've befriended through CrossFit and uh, he's such a good guy. We love him to bits and, and we've been trying to get to know him and draw him into our community and seek to love him. And, and, uh, and uh, we're sitting, having breakfast and uh, this friend of ours just happens to sit next to Nelly's brother-in-law who's a pastor who spends the entire breakfast in deep conversation with him sharing the gospel. I mean, there's a joy in that, isn't there? seeing the Lord clearly at work in this guy's life. There's a joy, isn't it, when we taste the fruit of the gospel going forward, when we see people grow more in love for Christ, isn't there? There's a, there's a, a joy. And undoubtedly, there was a, a great 
joy for the disciples in the unopposed, spirit-led spread of the gospel in Philippi. But the ease would not last long as there's a storm brewing. The calm before the storm, second point, the storm and the conversion of the jailer. Read with me verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. I mean, it's an amazing scene again. You can almost uh, feel Paul's irritation building. Uh, We have a slave girl, is the first thing we learn about her. She's a slave. That means she didn't actually even own her own life. She was owned the possession of another person. We learn that she was a slave, but not only a slave, she was possessed by an evil spirit, literally by a serpent spirit. Uh, You see... Uh, There was an understanding at the time that the god Apollos had a serpent spirit that would guard the foot of his mountain where he lived. And so serpent or serpent spirit became associated with fortune telling. So we have a girl who was possessed by a serpent spirit, or in other words, who was possessed by a spirit that enabled her to fortune tell. She had clairvoyance powers. But we don't just learn that she was a slave girl possessed by a spirit. We learn that she was exploited. She was exploited for money. Her owners used her spirit possession for the purpose of much money. And so she follows Paul and Silas and the brothers with them together around, calling out, these are servants of the Most High who have come to tell you about the way of salvation. For the people that heard that message, they would have thought, God the Most High, Zeus. For, obviously, Jews, of whom there are very few, they would have thought, naturally, Yahweh, our God. And in some sense, what she's saying is true. So do we have uh, demonic evangelism or something like this? Or We're not 100% sure what Satan's schemes are amidst this. Possibly, the demon is hoping to associate the preaching of the gospel with the occult, but we can't be sure. But the thing to note is she continues, not for minutes, not for hours, but for days. Day after day, this woman continues calling out, these are servants of the Most High God who have come to tell you the way of salvation. And we read on, you can feel Paul's irritation building and building and building. Verse 18 says, and she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. I mean, it's, I love this passage. It's, 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 it's so almost like you're there. I mean, you can feel him like just getting irritated and irritated and irritated until finally he's like, enough of this. Come out of her in the name of Jesus. And suddenly she's healed and the spirit is gone. In fact, in context, we can assume that probably she became a Christian and joined with the group of uh, brothers that are, tra- are traveling around, and Lydia, of course, and her own house. And the owners are furious. Their chance of income is gone. Their livelihood is gone. And so they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers of the city. And what unfolds is nothing short of a riot. Read with me, verse 24, uh, 20 to 24. It says, And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off. They gave them orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The owners come out and they accuse them of teaching unlawful practices, but really they hide their, their real ambition, which is revenge for destroying their livelihood. And a mob is stirred, stirred up and the scene unfolds like a riot with absolute chaos. Suddenly the crowd joins in and before you know it, the magistrates are just ripping their clothes off and they beat them and they beat them and they beat them and they beat them. And they're bleeding naked messes. And they drag them off and they hand them over to the jailer and they throw them in prison, but not anywhere in prison. They throw them in the inner prison and their feet are put in stocks like criminals and they lie there in prison in the cold, bleeding and beaten. I just want to ask us a question. I mean, how would you respond to that? Thinking about that for me, I mean, oh my goodness. I'm so quick to complain. I mean, just get me tired and hungry. And I'm not going to tell you, like I'm not going to moat or anything. I'm just going to do it just enough to cause you to go, oh, are you okay? And I'll be all like stoic, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, just... Oh, I've been working so hard and, uh, you know, and, and, and just trying to draw out as much sympathy as I can get. You know, I, you know we went on the Spartan race the other day and, um, and afterwards I had a little bit of a niggle and, you know, I'm sort of, you know, just, you know, making sure people can see that, you know, I'm hobbling a little bit because, you know, I've been, I've been you know, working real hard, just, just trying to draw any sympathy I can, you know. I'm no Spartan, not like, um, you know, Matt Carrera who gashes his leg open six centimetres and runs another kilometre on it and ends up in hospital for a week. You know, still haven't heard him complain yet, but um, uh, I don't know about you, but, but I reckon I would be whinging and, and moping. And, and, um, but what we see next is amazing. What we see next is exactly the opposite of what we should expect. Why don't you read with me? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying and singing hymns to God. What? Praying and singing hymns to God? They should be moaning and complaining. Where does this, where does this joy come from? How is this possible? How is it possible that having been flogged half to death, you could be singing and praying and praising God in prison? Well, I have a quote by Matthew Henry, which I think sums it up beautifully. I want you to read this with me. Matthew Henry says, The joy and peace of believers arise cheaply from their, chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them is but little compared with what is laid up for them. Therefore, the more hope they have, the more joy and peace they have. Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. That's beautiful. Did you catch that? Joy and peace of believers arise cheaply, chiefly from their hopes. What is laid out upon them, what is laid out upon them, what they suffer, what they endure, is but little compared with what is laid up for them. See, Paul and Silas have a joy that comes from hope in the gospel. You see, God is our creator and king. And he made the earth and he knit us in our mother's womb. He made everything that is and rightly rules over everything. 
And yet though he made us and made everything, we chose to reject him and hate him and rule our lives for ourselves and make ourselves king. We chose us as ruler rather than him as ruler and despised his ways. And God, because God is just, rightly burns with anger against us. Rightly is consumed with anger against all our wickedness and injustice, all our self-ruling. He can't stand it because he is just. But rather than allowing us to face certain death which we deserve, because God is not just just but loving, sent his only son. Sent his only son for you and for me. Sent his only son to come as a man, to live a perfect life, to die crucified on a cross. His wrath and anger poured out upon him instead of us. But he didn't just leave it there. He didn't just satisfy his wrath for our sin and make way for us through faith to be joined to him. Oh, he didn't just leave it there. Now through faith in Christ and Christ alone, not only can we be reconciled with God, but we are adopted by God. What Dave preached on just last week. Adopted by God. Child of God. All of what rightly belongs to Christ. All of his inheritance. All of the praise due a son. Now stored up for us in heaven. Our glorious inheritance in Christ with God for us. Awaiting us. A future glory and hope of every Christian. A magnificent Hope. And so what is laid up for us in heaven is not worth comparing to what is laid upon us in this life. You know, friends, it's so hard for me to preach on this because I'm a man who has suffered little. I live a good life. I live an easy life. I have good health. I have good friends. I have a loving church. So it's hard for me to to preach on this. But in the Apostle Paul, we have someone who has suffered much. In fact, someone who has suffered, I would say, far more than anyone here in this room for Christ. And Paul, the Apostle, writes in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, like 15-year-old Laurie Sturm waiting for her dad, her past difficulties didn't faze her at all because she saw her dad and she was filled with joy, anticipating being reunited with him. Like Laurie Sturm, like the Apostle Paul and Silas in prison, so it is for us. All-surpassing joy to be found in the hope of the gospel. An overflow of joy regardless of circumstance. Well, read with me again, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Not only joy... Not only joy, but joy impacting others. People are watching them. Imagine what they're thinking. As these men, having been beaten half to death, are singing and praising God in prison. What what is going on with these guys? What on earth is is going on? What, What are they doing? I mean... If ever there was a powerful witness, it's Christian hope and joy in suffering. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about a flippant denial of suffering, saying, ah, ha, ha, you know, nothing's wrong with my life. I'm not talking about that at all. 
I'm talking about clinging on to the rich promises of God in Christ. He is coming. He is enough. Christ, if God demonstrates his love for me in sending Christ, how much more can I be sure of God's love for me all the days of my life? Not flippant denial of my suffering, but clinging on to his promises. But more than this, knowing that suffering for Christian is never in vain, but purposed by God. And that's what we see here. Immediately we see a miraculous intervention. Suddenly there's an earthquake and the whole jail is shook and it says all the doors of the prison are open. And all of the bonds on all of the prisoners are loosed. And the guard comes in and he's going to kill himself. He's going to kill himself because Roman law says, if you allow prisoners to escape, the punishment of the prisoner will be placed upon you. So this guard was to be, if prisoners escaped, killed. And the guard comes in and he's about to kill himself. But Paul cries out. He says, stop. Read with me in verse 28. He says, stop. Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He says, we are all here. Not just Paul and Silas, but every prisoner in that prison was there. Why? I mean, surely some of them faced flogging or or worse, death. Why would they stay? I think the answer is back in verse 25 again. Verse 25b. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners in that prison were impacted by their message and their example. And so, impacted by their message and their example, read on, verse 29. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before them. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And and, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Trembling with fear, he comes in and he falls at their feet. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, how does he know to even ask this? Well, I mean, we don't know. Maybe he'd heard that they were preaching a message of salvation. Or, or, or maybe he'd heard the words of their accusers. And we're not sure. We're not told. But the point is this. He had heard they were preaching a message of salvation and he did not believe it until now. They had stayed and in doing so they spared his life. And there was no gain for Paul and Silas and the other prisoners. They faced further beatings and possibly death. No, only thing that was there for them was love for this man. And they stay and face the possibility of more beatings and death. And in doing so, they demonstrate that Christ is worth more to them than life. And they preach the gospel to him. And he and his whole household are saved. And there's this beautiful scene where they baptize him and he washes their wounds in return. And read on with me this last verse of our section. Then he brought them up into his household and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The word is, in fact, he greatly rejoiced. He greatly rejoiced rejoiced. The joy of the disciples is now the possession of this man, the jailer and his family. 
No, not only do Paul and Silas have a joy that surpasses the storm of their circumstances, but one that now spreads to others. And just in in ending this message, I want to just look at three implications of Acts 16 and this joy that we see, three implications for us that we can draw from it. First implication is that Christian joy is available to all Christians. You know, in this passage, it says nothing about Paul and Silas in terms of gifting or ability or eloquence or fearlessness. It says nothing about that. But what it does say is the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit of Jesus, the calling of God. Because it's all about his work and not about them. No, there wasn't anything particularly amazing about Paul and Silas in and of themselves that led to their joy in prison, but rather it was the work of God. You see, through the cross, not only does God choose you, not only does God call you, Not only does God by his spirit lead you to trust in Christ and through trusting in Christ justify you, but he sends his spirit into your heart, which reveals to you his love for you, which reveals to you all the promises, all the inheritance that is yours in Christ. And as he reveals the love of God through his spirit in your heart, in the promises of God, you as a Christian rejoice. This is a joy that is available to all Christians. You know, as a Christian, there is no place for pessimism. Because for Christians, the future is good. The future is great. The future is beyond anything that we could possibly dream of or imagine. You know, through the gospel, we have access to a limitless joy, a joy that is by far greater than our circumstances. Well, secondly, not only is Christian joy available to all Christians, but Christian joy in suffering is a powerful witness to the world of Christ and his worth. Now, I was thinking about that this week, uh, you know, about this concept of suffering in the midst of trial. And again, this is, this is a hard one for me because I, I've just not experienced much suffering. I mean, sure, people have occasionally said nasty things about me, but that's about as far as it goes. And yet, when I look around this church, I, I honestly see examples of joy despite circumstance, of all-surpassing joy in Christ regardless of circumstance, of treasuring Christ and that hope of the future so much so that even in the midst of a terrible situation, someone can be filled with joy. And I asked him if I could share this uh, with you this week, but uh, a beautiful example that I've personally witnessed is of Brother Andrew Lung. In the pain of having a loved one leave him, a spouse leave, this brother continued to trust in Christ. Trust that even though terrible things are laid out upon him, there is glory laid up for him. And walked through that whole situation with such a joy that I just saw the confusion on his friends' faces. As time and time again, he would explain how God was good to him despite his circumstances. There is Christian joy in suffering that is a powerful witness of the worth of Christ. Because when we treasure Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances. We, we show that Christ is more valuable than life. Christian joy is available to all Christians. Christian joy in, in the midst of suffering is a powerful witness to the world. And lastly, Christian joy is found on the Calvary Road. 
know, in the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy is that they picked up their crosses and followed Christ, isn't it? You know, Paul was trained as a tent maker. He could have pursued a, a business career or he could have pursued his rabbinic studies and become a famous rabbi or he could have done any number of things to live for himself, but instead he chose the way of the cross and of Christ and counterintuitively found joy in the process. And despite what we would think, following the example of Christ, of love and suffering, in the midst of it, we find joy. You know, John Piper puts it this way, and I want to share this in closing uh, because I just think it just sums it up so beautifully. Piper says, What a tragic waste when people turn away from the Calvary road of love and suffering. All the riches of the glory of God in Christ are on that road. All the sweetest fellowship with Jesus is there. All the treasures of assurance, all the ecstasies of joy, all the clearest sightings of eternity, all the noblest camaraderie, all the humblest affections, all the most tender acts of forgiving kindness, all the deepest discoveries of God's word, all the most earnest prayers, they are all on the Calvary road where Jesus walks with his people. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. On this road and this road alone, life is Christ and death is gain. Life on every other road is wasted. You know, in following Christ, in taking up our cross, just like Paul and Silas, and giving our lives to the glory of the gospel, to Christ and treasuring him, we have access to a joy that is greater than our circumstances, a joy that is all-surpassing. And so my prayer for us as a church is that for the future, regardless of what happens, whether it be in, in the midst of the calm or whether it be for the storm, that we would be able to tap into the deep joy that is to be found in Christ. Like Laurie Sturm, waiting for the return of her father from war, so two Christians find joy in waiting for Christ. Yet the hope this joy is built upon is so great that regardless of your circumstances, whether calm or storm, the joy to be found in Christ is all surpassing. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for us as a church. and I just want to thank you. I thank you for the countless examples here in this church of men and women, treasuring Christ regardless of circumstance. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for the way in which you give us as Christians access to a joy that is far beyond any circumstance. Lord, I just pray for anyone this morning who is in the midst of storm, who is in the midst of trial and maybe feeling prone to despair. Lord, cast our eyes afresh to the hope to be found in Christ and the gospel. Lord, may you help us to see Christ more clearly. May you help us to see, Lord, that whether storm or calm, there is a deep and endless, abundant joy to be found in Christ. Praise in His name. Amen.